So we started the first week and talked about that change of view, how we can sustain the practice through that change of view. And then uh, the next class was what's the attitude that you address life given that view? What's the way to make life work given the fact that it's a process and not a product? And so we explored the attitude which sustains that view, which even if we get lost in the other view, the usual view of things as people and individuals and accumulation and greed and ambition and all of that, this same tool can be used to convert in the moment one view to the next. So it's a, it's a way of conversion, a way of seeing. And that is the attitude of learning. This is actually very, sometimes I hear it as if I'm hearing it rather than saying it. And some, the beauty of it sometimes just resonates with me so strongly. Because when you're learning, then you're in the flow, you're in movement, you're in the process itself. It's when we start being opinionated and have a lot of criticism and judgments and ideas about what we learn that we freeze the view of process into product, you see, into knowledge, into things I want, blocks of knowledge, concrete things that I can store. All those words, you see, come from the product view. But when I'm learning, I'm actively involved in relationship, right? So it sustains the other view, which sustains the meditation itself. It's really very, so that is where we've left it. That's two legs of the stool, still teetering. We need to drop a third leg down. So tonight, we're going to talk about what it is, how we involve ourselves in the world in an ongoing basis in order to activate that learning so that we can convert it into the process view. Okay? So you, you with me on that? Does everybody understand what we're doing here? Better get it now. <laughs> There's not a fifth week. <laughs> So tonight I'm going to talk about that. And it's also very simple, you see, because what I'm going to talk about is that we need to connect with the world with our interests, with our passion. Because it is where we're most interested, it is where we are most passionate that we are most alive. And it is where we are most alive that the practice is sustained, is present. So let me talk a little bit about aliveness itself. And then we'll talk about how passion or following one's passion or looking or connecting or resonating with one's interest is the essential third leg of this stool. And that so easily we get sidetracked into ways of deflecting that passion off into um, side benefits like monetary gain or status or influence 
power. And that we start in one profession, one profession, one vocation, and we get involved in it because something really resonates with us about that job that we do. If we're a doctor, perhaps it was in the helping, in the extension and contact and helping someone in their health and through their sickness. If we were a lawyer, perhaps it was in the, in, in the wonders of the legal uh, uh, law and, and how to work with that and the whole conceptual way of working in that way. See, it doesn't matter so much what it is. What it is. It's whether our heart resonates with it, whether we can find something meaningful in it. That's where the interest is. It's not that we all have to go out and do, be social workers. That's not the point. Anything can be a passion if we come back to the rawness of heart or the rawness of intent that got us involved in that in the first place. Because when we're interested, aren't we present? Aren't we aware? Think of something you're interested in. If you're interested in it, isn't there automatic awareness? Isn't, aren't you automatically present for it? If you just have a child, right? Suppose you have a child that's uh, newborn, and you just watch the child. I mean, there's a growing, in that relationship of mother or father to child, you're interested in what that child is. Now, you see how the other things fall into that? You want to learn about that child. You want to know who he or she is. So your interest automatically connects with the learning. Let me see what this child, who this child is. Now, if we meet that child with a lot of, well, really, you, sh you should be like this and not like that, then we're making that child into another product. But if we're just interested in learning about what that child is, our heart is there. Isn't our caring there? Don't we care about that because we're interested in it, you see? The heart is automatically there. It's not that we have to practice meta on the child. Our heart's there. It's open in our interest. It, see, it's all so simple. We lose our way in this very simple thing with our thoughts and ideas about what life should really be about. I mean, it should be, I should make something of myself or whatever it is that we was ingrained in us all along the way. We carry that out rather than what our natural tendencies are. Um, one, of the, one of my teachers, Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, Amazing man. I just, um, sometimes I just wonder at some of the teachers I've been around. But um, I, he would sit out in front of his hut all day long and he wasn't practicing. I got very upset with that because I was practicing. I would do my sitting and my walking and I would look out at him and he would just be hanging out. <laughs> so I, just, I, w I went up to him. And I said, um, ah, John, you know, I'm practicing pretty diligently. He said, good for you. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I, I don't see you doing that much. <laughs> I, I didn't phrase it in quite that way. <laughs> I was, you know, I just, I wanted to find out what he, what do you consider practice or something like that. And I don't know how I did. And he says, I, I, I believe in natural samadhi. That it manifests um, naturally. I said, it doesn't manifest naturally in me. <laughs> he says, that's because you're not interested. I didn't know what to say to that. 
and I didn't even know what it meant. You see? But he was showing me the way. And, and because he was so fixed in the processes of life, products meant very little to him. For instance, these very wealthy businessmen from, Thai, from Bangkok would come. I loved him for this. He had such integrity. They would say, you know, I have a lot of money and I don't know what to do with it. Maybe I should give it to you and maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should build a big temple here and maybe I should not. Or maybe I should go give it to some other temple. See, playing with him. And he would say, I have a suggestion. Take your money and throw it off that cliff. <laughs> See, I love that. <laughs> he couldn't be bought because he wasn't like that. He didn't have that kind of. See, many, most of us, most of us can be purchased, and it's there where our interest gets deflected from the process to the product. You see? See how all these things are coming together? But it's in our interest where we are alive. What do you think we're doing here? We're waking up. Waking up means being alive, being present. I don't know how many of you have seen long-term meditators, but many, I don't want to make it a blanket statement, but there are, there are many, perhaps not most, but there are many long-term meditators that have deadened their lives through the meditation. You say, well, how can that be? Because they're after something. They're after a product. They're after peace or quiet or calm or something. But they're not after aliveness. And you can look out on a field of meditators and see which ones are alive and which ones are dead. You can see by the way they sit often. It's because they, they're in their old view. Nothing's changed for them. They're just trying to make something out of their meditation. To be something with it or to establish some, some product from it. It's not that. If it were about that, we would all be enlightened. We've been doing it. You have to work a completely different way. A completely different way. But the way is so obvious. It's so simple. It's so clear in perspective. And it feeds in, you see. I mean, you know, the Buddha in all of his wisdom said you have to have right understanding, right attitude, and right action. And we have, we've created some kind of formula out of that. Right understanding. It's about being alive. And what is our aliveness? I, uh, I um, was an undergraduate student uh, in psychology, and uh, I was at a, um, a behavioral school of psychology, and very famous psychologist there uh, was teaching me, and he said, I want to let you know that all that you are is the mechanical results of your conditioning, cause and effect. 
and he would show me pigeons that pecked lights and rats that not, you know. And he says, now, so drop everything else. That's who you are. And I thought, wait a minute now. I certainly can see that there's a lot of conditioning in me, but there feels to be something more to me than that. When I got involved in Buddhism, I realized that there was an enormous amount of conditioning, that the whole consciousness was itself conditioned into believing in a self, a separate and individuated self, and that this was all a product of conditioning, and that thoughts were a product of conditioning, and actions, and everything. But there was something else. There was an aliveness. There was something that conditions could not, could not affect. And I've always felt that in myself, and I hope you feel it in yourself as well. Because that aliveness, that spark, that isness in you is the basis on which experience is built. So it's more fundamental than the experiences that we have, than the conditions themselves. It's the fabric, the bedrock of what we are, called in different traditions to be different things. And it's there, it is there that we have to keep finding our way, finding our connection with, finding our relationship with. And it is there that we can create, through the eye of learning, we create a way to access it. So the question is, what are we interested in? Because when I'm interested, my heart is open. I care about it. And we all talk about caring, the heart. We all talk about the heart as being so essential in this practice. Where do we think that heart comes from? Well, why don't we just look at what we already care about and go from there? You see, we already have a relationship to our heart in what we care. And what we care about, we're already alive to. I saw a, a uh, Ted Koppel Nightline show uh, uh, with this man named uh, Maury Schwartz. And he was, he had, uh, there were several segments over a period of about a year on Maury Schwartz who had ALS. And Ted would interview Maury as he was getting progressively weaker all along the way. It also happened that Maury was a Vipassana student and had a very dear friend of mine as his Vipassana teacher who was also a part of this whole series of programs that they did with him. And as Maury's body became weaker and weaker, Maury's spirits became more and more alive. And this was very disconcerting to Ted Koppel, who thought it should be just the other way. <laughs> that the more, the closer to death you come, the more dour and morose you should be. But through the exchange with Maury, it became obvious that Maury was growing into life, not away from it. In fact, he would say things like, I've never been more alive than I am now. And Ted said, how could that be? And Maury would say, because I have no time left to give away. Do you see? 
the product process, product process, product process. And even in the last episode that ended with his death, his eyes were shining bright. And there were people who had come into his home to serve him. And my friend, who was the Vipassana teacher, said that it was almost as if people started to come in as if he were a guru, because he was so awake during this part of his life. He had found his aliveness in the very process of dying. Now, if our aliveness was only enhanced through our health, that those two would never cross. As you became unhealthy, less healthy, your aliveness would also go down. But you see, it's independent of that. It's independent of that. So we have to, what I call, ride the bull of our interest, ride the bull of our passion, because the bull flips us. The, everything, the bull being all the cult and culturization, everything that we've learned how not to pay attention to our hearts, we have to ride that bull and just bear with it and stay with what really resonates with our minds and bodies. A very good and dear, dear friend and fellow hospice worker who has been at uh, Hospice of Seattle now for six years is leaving the field. And she's just mourning the loss of hospice care deeply, deeply. But because the field has changed in ways that no longer resonate with her heart, she knows she's doing the right thing. And she keeps telling me, she says, I know I'm doing the right thing. And she'll, she'll be in tears just because hospice is, has that effect with you when you've worked with the dying and you've given forth that kind of um, attention to the subject. It, it grabs you in ways that few other subjects do. And it's very difficult to leave. And many, many people leave rather traumatically. Um, most people leave grieving. And she's grieving. But she says, my sadness does not mean that I'm not going towards my happiness. You see? So we ride the bull of our interest. And we may look down and suddenly the whole ground has changed. And what we thought was where we were standing on firm ground, firm ground is not anymore. And what, we, what was once, we once resonated with, something else has come in. I think I'm getting ready to move into a different field as well and feel that shifting of the bull as it begins to buck, not knowing where else I'm going to land. You see, where is it? Where is your aliveness? Where is that in you? Does, isn't it worth finding like a jewel? You know, like you were hunting all your life for the jewel. And you use everything as clues towards finding that jewel. And once you find it, you just, you, you ride the bull of it. Because life just isn't worth living without it. Or you find yourself 30, 40, 50 years old wondering what happened. 
But there's a difference between resonating with what your interests are and following your desires. This is not about pleasure. Pleasure is an accumulation. Pleasure is the old view. Pleasure is generated from the mind. Interest and passion come from the heart. Seeking out what is pleasurable may provide you with some temporal form of happiness, but it won't last. So it's not what is pleasurable, it's what you need. It's needs versus desires. You see, nobody in their right mind would want to be a Buddhist monk. You eat one meal a day, you live in squalor conditions by anyone's standards because you have no money, nothing. You just wouldn't want to do it if pleasure is the way that you resonate. But for some people, if they're passion and interest is understanding and discovering life and their need is to get into that and investigate it and look at it and to challenge it then it doesn't matter pleasure does not matter you'll go in and out of pleasant and unpleasant situations to fulfill that need and that's what I'm talking about in terms of interest and passion now, it usually does not mean that we have to do something radically different from what we're already doing. The reason we got involved in doing whatever we are doing is usually because there was some resonance within the passion of our heart. But something happened and we often get that passion deflected so that it gets clouded and contaminated and we no longer see life through the passion but through whatever it is that we have placed over that, again, like financial or st status or whatever. So we have to clear it away. We have to go back and find the basis on which that originality, that original residence was. And sometimes it's just a change of attitude. A story I've told, I know you have heard it before, but is a a friend of mine who um, was waitressing and she uh, was putting herself through college hating waitressing, didn't like waitressing. And she uh, and I had a talk and she said, um, she said, you know, uh, I just don't like waitressing. And I said, well, wh what do you want to do when you get finished with school? She says, I want to serve people. <laughs> So I said, okay, well, why don't you try to serve people as your waitress? <laughs> so she went back to her job and began to develop a relationship with the people who she was waitressing for. And she recovered, reinvigorated her heart's interest. And it wasn't deplorable work anymore. You see, I think always it's just a change or a switch of attitude often. And it's not as if we're like in some kind of ecstasy all the time around it. That's what I mean by riding the bull. Sometimes it's difficult and it throws us and it's, you know, 
up and down, but somehow you know that you just stand on this thing, just stay on it. So once we find our interest, is that it? No, because we have to continue to learn about what we're interested in or the interest begins to become uninteresting. <laughs> Think of the thing that you like the most and unless you're uncovering something new about it, it becomes old, right? So you see how this all ties together? I'm hoping the three legs begin to make sense to you now. So in the midst of our interest, we have to start uncovering and looking and exploring that in new ways. Like in hospice work, I would just take death from different points of view. I say, oh, I want to look at it this way. Or let's see what acceptance is like, or denial, or this, or that, or just the mystery, or da, 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 whatever. Just keep looking at it from different points of view. Different. The other thing is that we can begin to work from the individual to the general, from the particular to the universal. For instance, suppose your love is music, and you just love music, and you explore different types of music, and you play an instrument. I, I was in Columbus, Ohio, doing a meditation course this, this um, weekend. Very nice. I grew up in Ohio. It was wonderful to go back to that state and offer meditation. Just wonderful. It's like going home and teaching your parents. And um, the, the people who picked me up at the, at the airport was a couple, both of whom were in the Columbus Symphony as musicians and both played the flute. So we were talking and I was talking about passion and this kind of thing and they were talking about music. And I just started saying, well, you know, what interests you in music? Oh, you know, I like to teach it, and I like to feel it, and sometimes I hear it in my bones, and it resonates this way, and it's, it, sometimes it's the different pieces, and sometimes it's this or that, and just different aspects of what sound does. And I said, okay, how about other forms of music besides instruments, like the song of a bird? Oh, that's really interesting, to, you know? Would you move out? You can move out from the particular to the universal. So you start with your love of music, and then you listen. Then you develop a love of sound. Or you develop the love of, of, um, of the objects of sound. Or harmony. And you wonder about harmony. How is, how, how, where is their harmony? Where is their harmony in me? You see, you can pick different aspects of music. And, uncover and investigate and look. And every time you uncover and investigate, you're both interested and you're learning. And you're involved in the process, the participatory process of life. I'm losing some of you. I can feel it. This is not an abstraction, people. This is your life. If you can't resonate with this, Form without spirit is dead. You can sit until you die. And unless you're willing to match and come to your aliveness, unless you're willing to really approach this thing, 
in a revolutionary way, which is completely counter to the way we most of us live our life, nothing will happen. Now there's the challenge. You can come to classes. Form without spirit is dead. And many of us practice meditation dead. Does it seem dry to you? Does it just seem dry? Why do you think that is? Maybe you're relying on it too much. Life isn't dead. Life isn't dry. But it's up for each one of up to each one of us to discover our way to make it worthwhile to find our way through. And so we establish the three legs. Then we've got to sit on the stool. We've got to sit down on it. And we use those three legs all along the way. So we don't rely on forms. Forms help us. Sitting meditation is great. Dancing universal peace, chanting, going off to retreats, praying, whatever forms resonate with your heart and take you deeper into those three legs. Reading scriptures, contemplating, reflecting, investigating, inquiring, coming to Dharma classes, Dharma talks, all of those things. Those forms are all part of how to find our aliveness. They're not things in themselves. They're ways of discovering. They're tools to access our aliveness. They are not things in themselves. They have no importance of themselves. They are conduits, ways to establish relationships and learn. And that is the three-legged stool. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.